I'm Dr. Leela Lewis, and I am the host of Adventist World Radio 360 Health. Today's topic is something that is exciting and very informational to all of us. We're going to be looking at novel lessons learned from the 1918 flu, and could those lessons possibly apply to the COVID-19 pandemic? Everywhere we turn as medical professionals and as individuals within the community, COVID-19 has changed our world. Many have come up with different ideas, and today we want to look at what could possibly come out of the 1918 H1N1 influenza virus, and could some of that information help us? As a Seventh-day Adventist organization and as a Christian, I think it is a beautiful opportunity to follow in the footsteps of Christ, providing holistic health physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual healing. And the Seventh-day Adventist Church has done this for many years. We are so excited to look at some of these principles today. For our medical professionals, if you have not yet registered for your continuing medical education course, please go to, and the next slide will show us, awr.org forward slash health, where you can register. Again, that's awr. Dot org forward slash health. Although this is for physicians by physicians, all are welcome to attend. This is just an overall view of the program for this evening, just to give you an idea of where we'll be going. Again, we look forward to a presentation that will hopefully help each and every one of us and give us encouragement at an otherwise difficult time. I want to introduce to you someone who's very special to me. It's Dr. Dwayne McKee. Dr. Dwayne McKee is the president of Adventist World Radio. He's going to give us an opening, welcoming prayer. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Leela. Let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, as we turn the clock back many, many years, back to 1918, I pray that as we look at the lessons learned there, that we can apply them to what is happening all around us now. Father, as we look at the, the disaster that's happening around the world with the flu virus, I just pray that you will give us wisdom as to how we can handle it better and how we can work together in this old world so that many people can, their lives can be touched and changed and be healed. We thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Director of Health Ministries for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the whole global network. Dr. Lamless is also an ordained minister, and he's going to be talking to us from a global perspective. Thank you, Dr. Lewis. Good evening. And this evening, we look at hydrothermal therapy. Bible study and information channeled through Ellen White, a co-founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, uh, ensured that healthful living and caring for the health of the communities we serve are part of our belief system and, in fact, our DNA, as it were. 1865 saw the founding of the Western Health Reform Institute, which later became the Battle Creek Sanitarium. This work has grown into the largest Protestant faith-based healthcare system in the world. Um, our aim in healthcare is the blended ministry, care of the whole person, body, mind, physical, social, relational, and emotional. This system has grown into 
211 hospitals and sanitariums, 440 clinics and dispensaries, and serves in 2018 the outpatients, 20 million of them, 1.5 million inpatients. And charity dollars were donated to the communities we serve in excess of $1.2 billion. In 2020, we still defer to the named pillars of healthcare, scripture, inspired councils, and evidence-based peer-reviewed health science. The ravages and devastation of the global pandemic, pandemic call for ongoing commitment to make every effort to heal whenever possible, always to comfort and always to care. During this time, we need to continue with the very best practices, carefully balancing risk and benefit with integrity and explore opportunities that may bring relief and possible enhancement of human resilience through useful, proven and reproducible interventions. This is what we try and do on a worldwide level, and we continue to do it today. We also attempt to learn from history and place into perspective simple, helpful, healthy, and safe practices. Coming through the experience of history of pandemics, such as the Spanish flu, records emerge which demand careful evaluation and study, especially if in context, Florida illness may be allayed, prevented, ameliorated, or relieved, along with healthful lifestyle principles in daily living. This evening, a group of leading health professionals will share their thoughts, inspired and motivated by the journey they themselves have made with exposure to the influence of the Adventist health philosophy and practice going through some of its flagship institutions. With 1.8 million confirmed cases at least, 115,000 deaths, this demands that we search further. And tonight, I'm excited that this symposium is taking place to explore where to from here. I need to add, as all responsible leaders would do, the views expressed in this seminar are the views of each individual and do not represent necessarily the views of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. What a privilege it is for me to welcome you on behalf of our health systems, our church, and the work that we pray is going to make the difference in a very real way. God bless and take care. Thank you so much, Dr. Landless. That was very inspiring. And along these lines of learning about the historical nature of some of the treatments that you're going to be hearing about with the 1918 H1N1 flu, we want to look at Loma Linda University. Loma Linda University is my alma mater. It's where I was able to do my residency as well in obstetrics and gynecology. And they have a long, very long history of looking at the whole person. At this point, I want to introduce my friend and my mentor, Dr. Richard Hart.
Dr. Hart is an internist, and he's also the chief executive officer and president of Loma Linda University Health. Dr. Hart is going to be telling, talking to us about the current state of COVID-19 and Loma Linda University as a historical perspective. Thank you, Dr. Hart, for joining us. Thank you, Lila, and it's good, good to be with all of you. As Dr. Landis referenced, the health work of the Adventist Church began back in the 1800s, but really picked up steam in the late 1800s with somebody that many of us have heard of, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. And it was certainly Kellogg that kind of refined the whole concept of fomentations, of hot and cold treatments, of physical therapy of various ways, uh, the inventor of many ideas at that time that were patented, and became a, a national and even international figure in treating patients for various diseases before we had antibiotics in many of our modern medicines. If you look back at the way healthcare was practiced at that time, it was pretty abysmal. We were using things that were doing far more harm than good. Dr. Kellogg started his own medical school in 1895 in Battle Creek, Michigan, and fomentations and these kinds of hot and cold treatments were a center part of that medical school. That school only lasted for 15 years and closed in 1910. Ironically, for those of you of the Adventist tradition, the Adventist church actually had two medical schools from 1909 to 1910 because Loma Linda University began in 1905, but the medical school started in 1909. And many of our initial faculty came from the American Medical Missionary College, uh, which was the name of the school in Battle Creek that Dr. Kellogg had started. And so when Loma Linda University started its long trajectory for 115 years now, fomentations, hot and cold treatments, and all the natural remedies were a, a natural part of what we offer to the public. We quickly gained a reputation here in Southern California, and that has been part of our wholeness tradition since that time. So it's rather interesting now that another unseen enemy, the novel coronavirus has come back to stalk this world, that we're going back and looking at some of these treatments that were so effective 100 years ago. So as we go through this seminar today, it's my privilege to watch uh, our colleagues, many of them Loma Linda alumni, share their knowledge and skills uh, as they bring forward the treatment options that we have and trying to deal with COVID-19. Uh, we have been protected here in Southern California. We hope it'll stay that way. We only have a few patients in our hospital, but we are looking at these kind of treatment modalities as a way to deal with this infection that really has no other effective treatment at this point in time. So with that fascinating history, uh, going back a hundred plus years in our own history, and even before that in the Adventist church, it's a privilege for me to be part of this uh, and bring Loma Linda's interest and expertise to the table. Thank you, Leela, for being part of it. Exciting informational session that we're learning. At this time, we want to delve into the history closer. Let's look closer at what happened in 1918. What were some of these principles that Dr. Landless and Dr. Hart have now talked about that were actually taking place? What results actually happened when hydrothermal therapy was employed in the 1918 influenza virus. At this point, I want to introduce you a good friend of mine, Dr. Neil Nedley. Dr. Nedley is an internal medicine physician, hospitalist, and also the president of Weimar Institute. Weimar is very well known for its holistic lifestyle medicine. Dr. Nedley is going to be looking at us for the 1918 H1N1 influenza case study. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Nedley. Well, thank you, and good to be with all of you this evening. 
Uh, just a review, in 1918, they flew pandemic. According to the CDC's estimates uh, today, is that 675,000 deaths occurred in the United States alone, 50 million deaths worldwide. So this pandemic, as far as its deaths are concerned, are far above where we're at now with COVID-19. Interestingly, most deaths occurred in those under the age of five, between the ages of 20 and 40, and over the age of 65. And uh, this is uh, according to the CDC uh, data. Now, in, during this uh, pandemic and in America, it was well known that the army hospitals were actually the best place to go and military hospitals to get treated uh, for this. And it turns out that in army camps, 20% of those in the camp uh, ended up getting the Spanish influenza symptoms and ended up being diagnosed with the Spanish flu. 16.7% of those Army personnel developing influenza contracted pneumonia. And out of those that contracted pneumonia, 40% of them died. So if we take a look at the statistical death rate for someone getting influenza in the best uh, medical treatment available, at least thought to be the best at that time, was 6.7% uh, death rate. And if we took a look at the entire army camp, um, and again, 80% did not get the flu in the army camp, 1.34% uh, of all army camp personnel died from the flu. And uh, this was reported uh, in a journal in May of 1919. Uh, Dr. Um, uh, Rubel um, also reported on some comparison uh, data that were received from 10 sanitariums. Much of uh, a lot of the personnel in those sanitariums had been trained by Dr. Kellogg in this hydrothermal therapy aspect of things. It turns out there were 446 that were treated uh, that had influenza symptoms in sanitariums from the very beginning. In other words, at the very beginning of symptoms, um, they were treated in this sanitarium. 677 were treated with hydrotherapy in non-supervised settings in the community. So in other words, this was being done in home settings or in outpatient settings that was not a facility uh, like a sanitarium. So a total in those 10 sanitariums, including the communities around them that they had trained some people in the home setting, there were one, over 1,100 influenza uh, patients treated. 55 of the community patients contracted pneumonia, but most had pneumonia that was, quotes, well-established by the time the hydrotherapy had started. 47.2% of those pneumonia patients died. That's 26 out of the 55. And so 3.8% of the total outpatients with the flu died. And uh, that is a number that actually is, is uh, pretty significant when you compare it with the uh, Army military hospital data. Now, out of those that were treated in the sanitarium from the very beginning uh, with influenza symptoms, only 2.4% of those actually got pneumonia. 
54.5% of those with pneumonia died. So there were only 11 out of those 446 who developed it. Uh, six of those died. So the death rate of those with pneumonia was about 55%. But if we take a look at the total influenza patients who died who had received hydrotherapy in the sanitarium from the beginning, that would be 1.3%. So if we take a look at the best medical care available at that time, 16.7% of those got pneumonia, 2.4%, however, in sanitarium care. And the major difference in care between those two places was hydrothermal therapy. Uh, the death rate in the best medical care for those that had influenza was 6.7%, but in the best sanitarium care, it was 1.3%. So death rates significantly less, primarily due to the fact that the pneumonia rates were significantly less. It doesn't appear once a patient was diagnosed with pneumonia that they actually did necessarily better with the hydrothermal therapy, but during this stage, when influenza uh, and our immune response was starting, it turns out that this was a crucial stage of actually uh, having this hydrotherapy uh, potentially applied. Now, if we add to that an additional report from Hutchinson City Health Officer, there were more than 90 of 120 dorm students in one of our seminaries that were diagnosed with influenza. Most of these were students, but some of these were faculty members, and most were in that 20 to 40-year-old age group, which was the high death rate. Treatment by Dr. H.E. Larson considered um, good nursing care, regulated diet, and rest. The rest actually occurred even two to five days after their symptoms had gone. There were no drugs administered, but hydrothermal therapy with the heat cold to the chest, throat, and abdomen. In those 90 cases, zero cases of pneumonia and no deaths. The Hutchinson City Health Officer reported on this afterwards and he said, this record is remarkable. It makes the ordinary methods of dealing with the flu appear irrational. And because of this data that has been accumulated over 100 years ago, the question is, what can we do now in regards to deadly viruses before a cytokine storm occurs. Thank you so much, Dr. Nedley. That was very, very informational. You know, that's the very question that each of us want to ask. Does this apply to us now? Is there any research since 100 years ago to involve the idea that hydrothermal therapy, hot and cold treatment, actually does boost the immune system. At this time, I want to introduce my colleague, Dr. Roger Schwelt. Dr. Roger Schwelt is a pulmonologist and intensivist. He's also assistant professor of medicine at Loma Linda University and co-founder of MedCram, an online educational company. Dr. Schwelt, we have a question for you. Does the science say hydrothermal therapy works today? Well, thanks, Layla. Thanks for inviting me on. And we've been tackling this very question uh, on, our, on our website. We've been looking at this. It's funny, you know, how mother, the uh, necessity is the mother of invention. And with this epidemic and what's going on right now, we are looking desperately for things that can help. And, and looking back far enough, we can find it. So that is the question. Does hydrothermal therapy work? What does the science say? You know, uh, we are fully in 
pandemic mode here with COVID-19 and the deaths don't seem to be slowing down. But very early on in this pandemic, we had some good data coming out uh, out of the Lancet that showed that there was three phases essentially to this. There's the phase prior to infection, and then there's the, the part after infection. There's about a five-day period of time where there is asymptoms, no symptoms, and then about a seven-day period of symptoms. And then some people get worse, need to go to the hospital, and from there, things to go pretty bad pretty fast. Uh, one day from admission to worsening shortness of breath, another day to ARDS, and then finally into the intensive care unit. And so with that in mind, let's sort of go over those, those phases there. We've got the population that is exposed, and then there is an infection that must occur. And we're doing isolation, social distancing at that point to interrupt this phase. And then there's phase two. Phase two is when you have symptoms, you're infected, and you're not yet ready, able to be admitted to the hospital because your symptoms are not that bad. And it seems as though the data is showing that about 20% of COVID-19 patients will fit into this category and will need to go on to hospitalization, will need a ventilator, ICU, et cetera. And it's in this phase three that we're doing a lot of work, of course, with randomized placebo-controlled trials on, on different uh, antiviral medications, on anti-malarial medication, medications, um, ventilators, ICU nurses. We're not doing a lot here in phase two. And this is the phase where basically we're telling patients from the emergency home to, to go home, to self-isolate themselves, and to basically wait to see whether or not they're going to be in the 20% or in the 80%. Now, fortunately, 80% of these patients will get better on their own. They won't need health care. They won't need oxygen. And the main reason for that is the immune system. So let's talk a little bit about the immune system. Um, the immune system is made up of two different parts, the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system. You get both when you're born. The innate immune system is very powerful when you are first born. This is the part of the immune system that gives you a fever. This is the part that goes around eating up particles called the PAMPs or molecular patterns that look abnormal. And they present it to the adaptive immune system, which uh, finds it, remembers it, keeps memory cells of it. So the adaptive immune system, the one on the right, is the one that remembers vaccines. Uh, the one on the left is the one that goes out and scavenges and, and looks for particles. What we're finding out is that when we give an, a vaccine, that vaccine is going to cause memory cells on the right in the adaptive immune system, but there's a spillover of activation in the innate immune system. And as we're going to find out here very shortly, it's the innate immune system that seems to be crippled with this COVID-19. Now, I want you to remember a couple of cells. There's the natural killer cells, which are descendants of a lymphoid progenitor, lymphoid progenitor, but nevertheless, it's part of the innate immune system. And then these monocytes uh, that are part of the innate immune system. We're gonna talk about that. So there was an article that was published out of a center of excellence in Thailand titled Immune Responses in COVID-19 and Potential Vaccines, Lessons Learned. And basically the point of this uh, article was to compare the first SARS virus in 2002 with the one in 2012, that was MERS. And those are both coronaviruses. And to use the understanding of that in comparison to what's going on right now with SARS-CoV-2 and, and COVID-19. And in this article, they pointed out a number of interesting things. Number one, that an increase in neutrophils and a decrease in lymphocytes was very similar to the prior two infections. And this correlated with an increased chance of death. Um, they, it's well known that the first SARS virus and MERS both suppress the innate immune system and that COVID-19, the current one, may dampen antiviral IFN responses resulting in uncontrolled viral replication. You know, that's something that we've seen a lot of is people just are 
infected for a long period of time and they just can't kill the virus and get better. So what's going on there? They, they definitely say that there's an issue with the innate immune system and that it's suppressed at first and then allowed to go into overdrive, causing potentially that cytokine storm. And I think this paragraph in the article uh, really says it. They say, based on the accumulated data for previous coronavirus infection, innate immune response plays a crucial role in protective or destructive responses and may open a window for immune intervention. Active total neutrophils and lymphocytes during COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 probably induces a delayed type 1 IFN and loss viral control in an early phase of infection. Individuals susceptible to COVID-19 are those with underlying diseases, including diabetes, hypertension, and cardiovascular disease. In addition, no severe cases were reported in the young children. This is at that time when innate immune response is highly effective. These facts strongly indicate that innate immune response is a critical factor for disease outcome. And we can see here, here's another paper that was published back in 2004 on the first SARS virus that notices that these natural killer cells are at a very low percentage in comparison to a regular bacterial infection. There's another paper that was published in Nature Medicine. This was recently published just last month that took a woman who was in China infected with COVID-19 and was hospitalized in Australia, they did an essential workup on her and noted that yes, her monocytes and natural killer cells were suppressed. So what's going on exactly? This is a, another paper that was just published last year before COVID. And it showed that BCG vaccination, even though it targets the adaptive immune system here on the right, there is a spillover and it seems to induce an energy into the innate immune system, allowing it to fight better. So in other words, they saw a more than normal reduction in viruses when they were given the BCG vaccine. And so that has led to a multi-nation strategy of potentially vaccinating people again to the BCG vaccine. Well, something else has come up that's very interesting. And this was a paper that was published by Dr. Ashish Kamat, who is a urologist at MD Anderson in Texas. And what they've noted is if you look at countries here in light yellow, these are the countries that give the BCG vaccine. In these countries, the mortality rate is about 10 times less than in countries that have never gotten the BCG vaccine. Those would be countries that are in dark orange, like Canada, the United States, and notably Italy. The, the countries in purple are countries that used to give the BCG vaccine, but are no longer giving the BCG vaccine. So the question is, is what is it about this innate immune system and what is being done about it? So of course, this is not just news to us. There are several companies that have looked at the innate immunity of the body and have targeted this for cancer research. And now that they see a, a much bigger issue in terms of COVID-19, they're repurposing their technology for this. And there's a company that's looking at placental mesenchymal cells to have them derive into natural killer cells to see if that can fight the fight against uh, COVID-19. There was another uh, company out of Israel that is doing a small trial. They tried it in eight patients, again, using mesochymal stromal cells from the placenta that will readily differentiate into natural killer cells. And they're finding, as it says here in this article, 100% survival rate. This was just published just a few days ago. 
Here's another one. This is a South Korean company that's looking at natural killer cells. So this seems to be the focus of where we are going. So in short summary on this section, I think a good working hypothesis would be that SARS-CoV-2 infection downregulates innate immunity and that SARS-CoV-2 is allowed to progress because innate immunity is not strong enough. And that strengthening that innate immune system might be a place to stop COVID-19, especially in this very sensitive phase two, uh, where not much is being done. Patients are being sent home from the hospital and asked to stay there and isolate until they get worse. Is there something that we can do in this very long stage, about seven days, it seems like on average? Well, there's a lot that we can do, and we've got a lot of evidence for this, and we could do a number of talks about sleep. We've talked about that on our channel, and I've seen a lot of talk on the internet about that. Uh, nutrition we haven't covered yet, but there's a lot of stuff we can do there. There's uh, others, you know, Dr. Nedley was talking about the sanitarium um, talk. Certainly hydrotherapy was going on there. They were also taking them outside in the sunlight. There's vitamin D. What I wanna talk about and focus on is water. Water is a very interesting substance because out of all the substances that we have, it really holds heat the most. It has what we call a high enthalpy of heat. So what do we know about this? Well, let's go back to a German study in 2002 that I think should start us off. Let's look at the cellular biology. Here, they took about 12 healthy volunteers. And the only reason why they needed 12 is they didn't need to do much to get statistical significance. This is a pretty high activity here. They were immersed them in 39.5 degrees centigrade water. And what they noticed after that is that not only were there more monocytes, so increasing the body temperature increased the number of monocytes, but when they took those monocytes outside of their body and put them into a test tube where they subjected them to lipopolysaccharide, which basically tells the cells that there's bacteria around, they were actually more active than they were when they weren't submerged in 39.5 degrees centigrade, which tells us that not only is it, it's not just a parlor trick where we're just getting more cells, we're actually seeing the cells activated. And so the authors of this study concluded that the thermal effect of fever directly activates monocytes, which increases their ability to respond to bacterial challenge. Remember, monocytes are part of that very important innate immune system. And what about, what about exposing to cold? So a lot of times in hydrothermal therapy, we will expose the person to cold after heat. This is what I'm reading. And it, what it does is instead of allowing the body to dissipate the heat through vasodilated peripheral vasculature, it causes vasoconstriction to lock that heat in. So here is a paper that was published in at the University of Toronto, but sponsored, interestingly, by the United States uh, military to see what would happen when people were subjected to cold after being in, in hot. And what they noticed is that the natural killer cells went up statistically significantly. The lytic units in the natural killer cells went up. Lymphocytes, monocytes, all of them went up. And that was your innate immune system to the point where the authors concluded that this study suggests that despite popular beliefs that cold exposure can precipitate that, that despite the popular belief that cold exposure can precipitate a viral infection, the innate component of the immune system is not adversely affected by a brief period of cold exposure. Indeed, the opposite seems to be the case. The fall in core body temperature resulting from cold exposure led to a consistent and statistically significant mobilization of circulating cells and an increase in natural killer cells activity and elevations in IL-6. So I think that was, in, again, only seven subjects needed for this study because the effect was so profound. Here's a Polish study that looked at that. Apparently in Poland, they like to go swimming in the wintertime. Um, so they looked at that 
we just looked at a study that looked at it over just one, one episode. What about if we do it multiple times? So at the end of a winter swimming season, they took people who like to do this, 12 habitual winter swimmers, and they looked at eight people that didn't do that. I can tell you that I would have been in that second category because I don't really see the, the need to go swimming in the winter time. But nevertheless, in the part that went swimming in the wintertime, they had increased concentrations of leukocytes, monocytes, and plasma IL-6, and they were statistically significantly higher. And I can show you more and more studies, more than we have time for. Uh, but the question is, is, okay, so if we're heating people up and it, we're, we're increasing the immune system, isn't that going to cause more of a cytokine storm? Isn't that going to make people worse? Maybe we'll get them into the hospital faster than shorter. Well, I think this paper that was published about five years ago really answers that question. And what, what this uh, paper titled Fever and Thermal Regulation of Immunity, the Immune System Feels the Heat showed, was that fever actually can bring down the number of cytokines. Read to, listen to what they say in this paragraph. Although febrile temperatures initially increase the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines by macrophages at sites of inflammation, there's also evidence that thermal stress dampens cytokine synthesis once macrophages become activated. And they go on and talk about these monocyte-derived macrophages and how they look for these PAMPs, these, these molecular patterns to eat them up and present them. And it shows that the messenger RNA, which is the message that tells the cell to make the cytokines, is degraded by the fever, so you actually have less cytokines. Finally, they, they mention about a, a mouse model of collagen-induced arthritis, and they, they say here that mice exposed to fever-ranged hyperthermia had significantly less joint damage, correlating with a reduction in serum tumor necrosis factor levels and an increased IL-10 production in inflamed joints. Collectively, they say this finding suggests that strategic, strategic temperature shifts contribute to a biochemical negative feedback loop that protects tissues against damage from excessive cytokine release following infection. Okay, so let's summarize here. Working hypotheses. Innate immunity can be strengthened, at least by surrogate markers, by manipulating external heat cold applied to the body. Number two, heating and cooling seems to increase markers of innate immunity, like natural killer cells and macrophages. And number three, these interventions don't necessarily seem to exacerbate the cytokine storm implicated in ARDS or pneumonia. All right, but what about real people and real diseases? Enough with the cells. Well, for that, we've got to go back to the last century. There was a famous psychiatrist, Julius Wagner Jorag, who noticed in his psych wards that people with neurosyphilis got better when they had a fever. Well, at that time, they didn't have penicillin. This was well before penicillin, but they did have quinine sulfate, which was the treatment for malaria. So we had this idea, what would happen if I infected these people with malaria? Very carefully watching them and then see if the fever treated the patient. Sure enough, it did. And in 1917, he published his first report where he actually induced an infection in a patient so he could get a fever. The fever, the increased temperature in the body, cured the patient of neurosyphilis. And then he cured the patient of the malaria with the quinine sulfate. Um, he won the Nobel Prize for medicine for just that. And at the time, at that time, there was many ways that they can induce a fever. Malaria was just one of them, but as you can see, they would inject people with foreign protein, chemicals, sulfur, etc. But I find the last one here the most interesting, immersion of the individual in a hot bath or placing him in a heat cabinet. Well, 
Dr. Wagner Jorag, as Dr. Nedley mentioned, had a colleague across the country in New England. Dr. Rubel was the medical director of the New England Sanitarium, which Dr. Nedley was talking to us about. And just to review those results again, he noticed that in the sanitarii or the sanitaria, the 10, the overall mortality was about 1.3%, as opposed to the overall in the army camps of 6.4%. Now, this is where they were using aspirin. It had just come out in 1899. They were suppressing fevers. They Obviously, they were in big uh, tents. They were all crammed in. The air was not that clean. So why was, the, why was the mortality, again, lower in the sanitarium than it was in the army hospital? It wasn't because they were doing a better job of treating pneumonia. No, indeed, their mortality rate for pneumonia was, was arguably higher than it was in the army camp. It's because less people got pneumonia. So only 2.5% of the people in the sanitarium got pneumonia, whereas 17% of the people in the army hospital got pneumonia. And at that time, before antibiotics, pneumonia was a bad, bad thing to have. By the way, Dr. Rubel, what did Dr. Rubel attribute his success to? And I think it's very interesting to read the last sentence in his write-up, which was published in Life and Health, May 1st, 1919. He says, the principal merits, as far as treatment was concerned, was placed in careful nursing, and hydrotherapeutic remedies. So there's many, many ways that you can raise a core body temperature as we've just sung. This is a example of a sauna. Here we see the tradition in Finland go on many years. We'll talk more about Finland, but you get hot. And as soon as you get hot, you jump into a very cold pool. What we believe this does is it clamps down the peripheral vasculature, keeps the heat in higher and longer. But what about, we've talked about people and we've talked about disease. Let's talk more about people and diseases and less about cells because that's where we really want to go. So here is a placebo. Here's a, a randomized perspective trial, I should say, that went on for six months. Two groups, 25 in one group, 25 in the other group. The 25 in one group had a sauna bath similar to this one to two times a week. The control group did not. After about three months, there were half the number of colds in the sauna bathing group than there was in the control group. And this was statistically significant down to a P level of less than 0.01. And it wasn't in particular one or two people. It was across the board that brought that number down. So it seems as though this was applicable across the board. Here's another study. This, this was 3,000 subjects and it was only over a month. And what they asked them to do was to, instead of just showering hot, is to shower hot and then cold at the end to keep that heat in and cause vasoconstriction. And what they noticed is in the intervention group, there was a 30% reduction in sick days at work. 30% reduction in sick days at work. In other words, they got sick, but it reduced the severity of it so they didn't have to miss work. That was a perspective study. This study I find fascinating. Here was a study that was done in Finland. And for those of you who don't know, just about everybody in Finland does saunas. We'll talk about that a little bit more. This was a perspective study. It involved 2,200 men. And back in the early 80s, they did a questionnaire and they asked them very simply, do you use a sauna bath once a week, twice a week, three times a week, or four times a week? And that's pretty much the kind of question that you have to ask in Finland because less than 1% of them don't take a sauna bath. Just about everybody does. And what they did is they followed them for about 26 years. And because it's a socialized medical system over in Finland, they were able to look for the names and find out how many times they've been hospitalized in their hospital system for pneumonia. Well, this is what they found. They found that for 
if you look, if they reference those who only took it once or less per week and said that that was the reference, those who took it two to three times per week had a 33% less chance, uh, was associated with a 33% less chance of getting pneumonia. Those greater than four or equal to four almost cut it in half. Now, this is an association study, but they can listen to all the things that they took into consideration for confounders body mass index, smoking history, diabetes, heart disease, asthma, bronchitis, tuberculosis, education, cholesterol, alcohol consumption, total energy intake, socioeconomic status, physical activity, C-reactive protein. Despite all of that, there was still a statistical significant difference. And let me just tell you, there is a plethora of data on this that shows that this is not just for pneumonia. It's also for cardiovascular disease. It's for dementia. All of these things are related, and you can look up the research on Finnish saunas. So what's the working hypothesis? Heat followed by cold improves innate immunity, significantly enough to reduce actual diseases, not just cell counts, such as colds from viral infections, as we saw, severity of illnesses, and even pneumonias requiring hospitalization, and many more studies as we've talked about. However, we still haven't talked about COVID-19, which is why we're all here. And it's really difficult to do that because we have to do studies in the current environment. We didn't have COVID-19 before November and December of last year. So let's go back to Finland and saunas. So a little bit more information because I'll, let me be clear, saunas are not the only way you can induce to have high core temperature elevated. There's many ways, but this lends itself as such an interesting example that it needs to be pursued, I believe. There's about 5.5 million people in Finland. There's about 3.3 million saunas in Finland. And as you can see with a regular sauna, you can get a lot more than two or three people to the point that if you asked all the people in Finland to go into a sauna all at the same time, they could actually do it and it would hold the entire country. Greater than 99% of the population of Finland has a sauna bath at least once per week. Now, while saunas are very popular in Germany and Austria and Sweden and Norway, not nearly as close as they are in Finland. So that gives us a very interesting opportunity. We can go and look at the numbers. And so there's a website called Worldometer, and you can look at the number of cases, total cases, total deaths, uh, total cases per population, million, total, everything. You can look at everything and break it down. So we've done that. And I find it very interesting here that on a population level, if we look at the United States here in terms of population, cases, deaths, cases per million, deaths per million, and when the first case came and what the University of Washington modeling says will be the peak number of deaths per day when we do get to our peak, you can see here that when we compare Finland to other Nordic countries, very similar to it in culture and, and uh, in healthcare systems, we can see here that the number of cases in Finland are less than half. In number of cases of deaths, almost an order of magnitude less. The number of cases per million, less than half, the number of deaths, way less. Um, and that is despite the fact that Finland was the first country out of those Nordic countries to have a COVID-19 positive case. If we look at the restrictions that are going on there, they have their schools closed just like Norway has the, the schools closed. And there's non-essential uh, stores that are closed essentially with this. And if we look at testing, the amount of testing going on in Finland per million is not that different than what's going on here in the United States. So we have looked at the evidence for hydrotherapy in terms of COVID-19 from a cellular level, biochemical level, 
And we have looked at it from individuals with diverse diseases. We're talking about colds, flus, viruses, illnesses, pneumonia. And we've looked at it in a sense as a surrogate and really now there's a lot of confounders with the population data, but we have looked at it in real time because if this should have worked, we would have expected it to work for Finland because they're so dogmatic and religious about doing their hydrotherapy. So I think that's a really interesting uh, statement. And where we are right now is we have to remember something, that the good is not the enemy of the perfect. There is no FDA-approved medication or treatment for COVID-19. There are many therapeutics that are being looked at, and some are very promising. So we've got to look at this good versus perfect. I mean, look at the CDC website. If you don't have personal protective equipment, they're actually recommending that you use a bandana or a scarf. That's because... Well, what else do we have? We don't have studies on bandanas and scarves, but we got to do the best that we have with what we have. Keep in mind that if we come up with a medication that works beautifully and perfectly, how are we going to scale up that amount of medication that fast at this point in time? The day that it was announced that hydroxychloroquine was going to be a good medication and promising, you couldn't get it in the pharmacies. And so we have to take things with uh, some understanding. Physicians right now, and I'm on the front lines as well, I've been treating patients last week with COVID-19. We don't have all of the answers. We don't have all the evidence, but we have to use what we've been given. And that's the definition of compassionate use. So we'll finish up with this slide. And I want to keep in mind, we've got phase one to prevent infection. That's social isolation. That's uh, distancing. We have phase two. And there's millions of people in phase two. What are we going to do with all of the people in phase two? That could be helpful. And then we've got phase three. Um, this is where we have hospitalization, ventilators, randomized placebo-controlled trials, medications to try to prevent the patient from dying. And so with that, what I think we need to do is talk a little bit more about practicalities. And I'll hand it back to Layla to introduce our next guests. Thank you so much, Dr. Schwalt. That was that was amazing. I, I hope all of us can rewatch that over and over again. That That is absolutely amazing. Yes, at this time, we want to talk about four potential protocol scenarios. And again, I'm going to reintroduce a couple of our guests and introduce you to a couple of new. So we have Dr. Zeno Charles Marcel. Dr. Marcel is the adjunct associate professor um, of uh, Loma Linda University. He's an academic internalist and he's the former administrator and past dean of the Faculty of Medicine and Health Sciences at Montemorelos University. We also have Dr. John Kelly, who will be presenting as the founding president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. He teaches for lifestyle medicine for medical professionals. We will also have in our panel, Dr. Eric Nelson. He's the assistant professor of surgery at the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. And finally, we'll be having Dr. Roger Schwelt, who needs no new introduction. Before each of these gentlemen present in the order that they were introduced, we will be looking specifically at the phases that Dr. Schwelt just discussed. Phase one, phase two, and phase three. Dr. Zeno will be discussing specifically on the category of the patients that are in the community and have not yet necessarily had symptoms. Dr. John Kelly will be discussing part of the beginning of phase two, specifically in regard to the patients who have been exposed, what can they do, and is there ways that we as physicians and medical professionals can learn more on hydrothermal therapy, practically speaking. Dr. Nelson 
will be talking to us from his hospital's perspective. Erlinger is doing has just had an approval for an IRB proposal for phase three patient populations, and he'll be presenting that along with Dr. Schwelt, who will be talking to us about the ICU patient. At this time, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Zeno. As soon as Dr. Zeno's over, we'll just proceed right through with Dr. Kelly, Dr. Nelson, and then concluding with Dr. Schwelt. Dr. Zeno, thank you so much. Thank you, Leila. Uh, what I will do is uh, kind of unpack a little bit those phases that, uh, that Roger mentioned. In the first place, we, we can see the bulk of people are really individuals who are not uh, at all affected with COVID-19. They're not, they, they, they don't have either contact with or uh, they, they have been in contact and they are no, they, they're no longer uh, susceptible. At least that's what we believe for some of the people who have already had the infection. So these individuals are actually, that's a large number of people. This is not the slide set that we're using. Um, it's a large number of people. And for healthcare workers, uh, they fall into a group that's kind of in intermediate because it's on one side, people who are not infected, but people who are at high risk. So for all of the doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers and individuals who are working in hospitals and clinics, uh, you are in a, in a risk zone, even though you don't, uh, you don't have the disease, you are prone to uh, being in, in contact with someone with the disease. Now, what that means is that you have to avoid certain things. And what you'll be avoiding is contact with the uh, virus itself or avoid contact with someone who has had contact with that virus, okay? And if you have had contact, then there are issues about removing the, con the contagion if you can do that with uh, sterilization or destroying the contagion, if you can do that. Uh, but certainly you don't want to spread the contagion to someone else. So these are the issues that we'll be dealing with and how you can and I can uh, protect uh, ourselves from uh, becoming infected with the virus. Can we go to the next uh, slide? So here we have uh, these, these four uh, areas. One is the affected but not infected. Then we have the second uh, treated or uh, positive or tested positive uh, and high risk but no symptoms. And then the hospitalized and the ICU patients. We're going to deal with those later on. The, uh, the, the group that I'm talking about, uh, if we go to the next, would be part of uh, the group on the left and the risk all the way down to being hospitalized. And we can go to the next one. Now, with that in mind, the population that we're dealing with is really the largest subset of everything. And this is the individual, or this is the group that the frontline healthcare workers are occupying. Let's go to the next. Now, COVID-19 affects the whole person, not just their immune system or not just their physical being. And if we were to look at the determinants of health, we'll see that there's a whole, a whole group of things that are involved that make up a whole person. Okay, next slide. We are looking at being able to affect the different parts of that circle, of, of all of those things that are involved. And uh, what we are trying to do is to enlarge our toolkit 
so that we have different things to be able to attend to the various aspects of uh, not only the infection, but also the aftermath and uh, the concomitants of that infection. Next one. So here are the things that we all know. We need to stop the spread of the germs. And this is the CDC's, uh, or one of the CDC's uh, displays of looking at what things we have to do. And this, from a social standpoint, we have to, we have to be consistently and constantly telling people that this is something that they need to do. Next one. Uh, if you look at the, at the benefit of doing any of these, you will see that uh, there is a benefit for each one, and it's a cumulative benefit over all of these if we were to do them together. Next one, please. Now, the immune system is at the heart of our defense, and a, a great defense is actually an awesome offense in this case. Next. So the Harvard uh, uh, Medical Letter actually put out a well-researched um, study, actually not a study, a, a report on things that we can do to strengthen the immune system. And I have a, a list here uh, of common things that people do, not realizing perhaps that these things may be uh, affecting their ability to resist the infection if they were to come in contact with, uh, with the SARS-CoV-2. So don't smoke, diets high in fruits and vegetables, work out better, getting enough sleep, adequate sleep, something that might be a challenge for uh, doctors who are on call all the time. Uh, take steps to avoid infection, and those are the things that the CDC is mentioning. But managing stress and exercising regularly and taking steps to avoid the infection, such as washing our hands frequently and cooking meats thoroughly if we're going to be using meat, all of these things are important to help us to have a very resistive uh, immune system. Next. Along with this, uh, in the physical realm, we're looking at getting seven to eight hours of sleep, preferably at night, uh, moderate exercise, one hour a day, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds. These are all things that have the micronutrients, such as uh, the list that I have below, uh, vitamin B6, vitamin B12, C, D, and E, folate, and of course, uh, some of the minerals like uh, zinc and selenium, iron and copper. Then hydrothermal therapy. By the way, hand washing is a hydrotherapy, right? And avoiding nicotine and alcohol, avoiding close and prolonged contact and uh, making contact with your face and eyes and nose. And of course, social distancing and using mask gloves and washing your clothes. Next one. And then we have uh, mental, emotional, spiritual and social issues. For the mental, emotional, stay positive, be optimistic, cultivate an attitude of gratitude, and of course, manage stress uh, healthily. Uh, don't use some of the, uh, uh, the negative ways to manage stress. And of course, don't panic. Spiritually, consider the transcendent, find meaning in what's going on. And uh, according to your own uh, tradition, uh, you will pray. And social issues, stay connected, Avoid loneliness. There's an epidemic of loneliness that's going on as well. And help others with acts of kindness. All of these things actually improve the functioning of our immune system. Next. So with this, we can say that as we do these things, we can actually be preventing, uh, contacting the disease, uh, being, contag uh, being contagious ourselves with other people, 
And if we were to be in contact with the virus itself, then we have a fighting chance to keep it off. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you, Dr. Zeno, for those thoughts. Um, so if I'll be talking uh, with you tonight, if I can see our first slide here, I'll be talking about uh, another aspect of uh, hydrothermal therapy. Um, next slide will show that it's, I'm gonna be talking about the aspect that has to do with the, what we might call the outpatient phase or the first part of Dr. Sweld's uh, uh, phase two, the 80% that don't need the hospital. As the next slide shows, I'll be talking about treatments just like those that were reported in the Life and Health Journal issue May 1919 that we've been speaking of, different ones have talked about tonight. You know, one of the more important uh, and prominent hydrother hydrothermal therapies used in the Spanish flu pandemic was called a fomentation. We've already heard that term tonight. We might better refer to it today perhaps as uh, moist heat packs. As the next slide shows here, I have a couple of pictures. Uh, we see that the uh, on the left, the photo from that issue that uh, demonstrating the nurse uh, putting a hot foot bath uh, to the patient who's uh, subject who's in bed. Uh, we wanna keep them warm. And the photo on the right shows actually, uh, I'll be talking here in a minute about the moist heat pack being wrapped in thick towel to keep it from injuring the skin. Okay, so the next slide uh, will show here, um, I've been talking about, uh, again, what they called in that issue, fomentations. So the subject is uh, on their back, uh, in the bed, plenty of covers. We wanna keep the subject warm during any of these treatments. We use a hot foot bath. The temperature of the water would range typically from 104 to 110 degrees Fahrenheit. However, for diabetics or those with any kind of uh, neuropathy or or uh, sensation deficit, we should keep the water uh, at 104 or less. We would be applying a cold terracloth um, uh, to the head. We wanna keep the head cool at all times during these uh, hydrothermal treatments. Partly it's to protect the brain, but it's also to make the uh, treatment, the heat treatments more bearable for the subject. We want it to be pleasant and not unpleasant. So we would start with, uh, moist heat pack. We wrap them as a, the picture showed in a towel. We would begin by putting uh, one underneath the uh, subject, uh, basically going from the nape of the neck to the pelvis um, and, uh, on the lower side. Then we would put a wrapped heat pack uh, on, on the chest and cover the subject with blankets. As the next uh, slide shows, here is a picture, for, again, uh, it's from that same issue showing the nurse uh, making an exchange of the chest uh, heat pack. And uh, next slide, we'll continue with a little narrative. So we place the top fomentation every four or five minutes. Uh, in between, we would rub the chest with a cold terry cloth. Uh, this is not so much as to cool the body, but as to sort of trap the heat in and also make it more uh, bearable to, again, to the subject. We would continue this uh, for three or four exchanges or, or until profuse perspiration develop. Uh, but again, it's important to keep the head cool and this does help control the perspiration and allow us to have a longer treatment. Uh, I typically, for example, would change that uh, cloth to the head every 
minute, perhaps more frequently, uh, depending on how the subject is feeling. So we're gonna end with a cold terry cloth rub to the chest and cover up the subject with blankets to keep uh, warms, keep the heat in. We're gonna pour some cold water over the feet and remove the hot foot bath. And uh, again, wrap the feet up nicely. We're gonna continue uh, the cold application to the head to keep the head cool. And then we're gonna have a bed rest when the perspiration subsides. Next slide will show, uh, I'm not gonna talk about the this other treatment, but our, an alternative hydrothermal treatment is the hot tub bath. Uh, I have this description in the slides you can see later. Uh, from, let's go to the next slide. So we know now that we understand now that hydrothermal therapy produces a hyperthermic uh, state that sort of induces a fever-like response that aids in fighting the virus as Dr. Swelt uh, so well showed us and presented from the uh, paper's science. Treatment should begin as soon as infection is known or reasonably suspected. Uh, don't wait uh, for symptoms necessarily. Um, and we want to do these treatments once or twice a day. Uh, at that rate, we, it can be continued quite some time. I have seen cases where three or four times in a day for uh, to try to get a more uh, intense treatment, but those should not be continued long at all. The last slide I have actually is to show that uh, along with some others, we've organized the hydrothermal training course actually. And um, the, you can see the where, um, we have a email. You can contact us at hydrotherapy training course at gmail, or you could contact me directly. Thank you for the chance to share with you this tonight. Hello, thank you for the privilege of uh, being on this August panel. I'm very privileged to uh, be here and talk about our inpatient protocol for providing hydrothermal therapy to non-ICU COVID-19 positive inpatients. I want to thank uh, Dr. Greg Steinke for his work in developing this protocol and implementing it as a hospitalist here in the Chattanooga area. We're very excited. We just got our IRB approval uh, three days ago, and we've already got one or two patients on the study. If you want to go to my next slide, it describes our protocol very briefly. Uh, it involves 25 minutes of heating pad treatment to the chest, followed by about a one or two minute thermal lock, as Dr. Schwelt described, provided by a cool or cold moist towel. The patients then dried thoroughly and warm blankets are replaced. This is repeated approximately four times per day. As you've already heard from the other presenters, there's a variety of methods whereby uh, you can apply heat to the body. We've personally chosen the thermophore heating pads to maximize patient and nursing safety. This reduces the number of trips in and out of the patient's room. And of course, every trip in and out of the patient's room requires the nurse to burn through some of that precious personal protective equipment that is so scarce right now. So uh, we're using a thermophore uh, heating pad. If thermophores uh, become too scarce and we run out, uh, we do have bear huggers. And if a negative pressure room is available, Dr. Steinke's had some experience using uh, bear huggers as well. But of course, the, um, the blowing air with the bear hugger does give some some safety considerations in light of um, aerosolization. In, in addition to uh, standard hemodynamics, we're monitoring skin temperature and systemic temperature in a way that doesn't require the nurse to enter and exit the room. The goals of this trial are to activate the presumed immune modulating benefits of hydrothermal therapy. 
You've already heard from other presenters, uh, and I personally believe that the sudden temperature changes induce at least a demargination of uh, white blood cells, and perhaps this allows them to redistribute throughout the body. In addition, some of the basic science that Dr. Schwelt presented demonstrates an activation of the innate immune response at a cellular level. Uh, there's, of course, also immune modulating benefits to the body's fever response, as Dr. Kelly just mentioned. We're hoping to induce a fever, but not above 104 degrees. We do, of course, have some exclusion criteria. Any patient with history of uncontrolled arrhythmias, pregnant patients, a uh, patient that has secondary hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis with an H score of 169, uh, that indicates they're pretty close to a cytokine storm. And although it may be that hydrothermal therapy is helpful in that, uh, we're not willing to risk this in this feasibility case control trial. Our primary outcomes of interest are length of stay and disposition. Did the patient go to the intensive care unit or did they go home? Uh, we've dichotomized our oxygenation variable, although we might uh, collect some additional data on that. And of course, for secondary outcomes, we have lots of lab parameters that we're testing as part of the uh, overall protocol that our hospital follows. We're simply adding hydrothermal therapy to the protocol that our hospital already has put in place. I'd like to end by um, inviting any watching physicians who treat COVID-19 positive patients in the inpatient setting to consider implementing this or some similar protocol. Hopefully many centers can get IRB approval to collect data. And if similar protocols are used, perhaps meta-analysis of data in the future uh, will be possible, increasing statistical significance for any findings. That you see my email on the screen, my personal email address. I am happy to share our protocol, detailed nursing instructions that Dr. Steinke has developed, our data collection sheets, consent forms, uh, any basic science papers, uh, such as the one that describes the H score, etc. I'm happy for you to modify them to fit your own needs in your own setting. Again, you see my email, enelson06m at yahoo.com. I want to thank you in advance for considering not only the patients you're currently treating, but the need to expand the evidence basis for treating future patients with hydrothermal therapy. I'll be happy to take any questions during the question and answer period. Thank you for being part of this call. Well, thank you very much. Um, and uh, so I, I'd like to cover the intensive care a portion of this, and it's not too different from um, my colleague, Dr. Nelson. It's, it's an inpatient, but there are a couple of distinguishing factors that have to be taken into consideration. Whenever you're applying heat to the patient, you've gotta be careful that it doesn't burn. Um, actually, I, I we'll hold off on that uh, slide until the end, yeah. So when you have an unconscious patient who's on the ventilator, it's very important that the, that the, um, the hot towel is not gonna burn the patient. So that's uh, a very important consideration. Um, sometimes it may be as simple as uh, holding medication that may be suppressing a fever. You, you may have noticed, and a lot of the things that we're doing here, and we're looking at the protocols and the foot baths and things, and this, this stuff may look a little bit crazy. You may not have seen this stuff before, but keep in mind that the target that we're going towards is increasing the core body temperature. You know, it seems as though COVID-19 is a perfect virus to use this on. Number one, phase two lasts up to seven days on average. So there's a lot of time to work there. The other thing that's very interesting about it is that probably more than SARS-1, 
SARS-2 or COVID-19 seems to suppress fevers more than usual. And so a lot of people actually have the virus, don't know they have the virus and have no fever. And that may be the reason why the virus is able to uh, replicate, replicate and spread. So if we can increase the core body temperature using whatever techniques are available to us, that might actually help quite a bit in terms of speeding up recovery and in not spreading the virus. It's a, it's a possibility. In the intensive care patient, as I mentioned, um, you may not want to treat fevers as aggressively. Uh, we've noticed that patients coming in with COVID-19 have elevated liver function tests. And so that would be a relative contraindication to using Tylenol. There's already been some debate about using um, non-steroidals. We do know that non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications inhibit the production of um, prostaglandins, which are directly responsible for antibody production. Of course, that's the adaptive immune response and not the innate, but nevertheless, uh, an important finding. Uh, Dr. Nelson has already described the, um, the, the, the issues involved with uh, blowing hot air. We want to minimize blowing things around because that can stir up and aerosolize uh, COVID-19 viruses. Um, another thing that I might want to add is um, you know, the, the ICUs that I work in, uh, both in Banning and in Redlands, have been extremely supportive. I have nurse practitioners there that are eagerly awaiting to start a study. One of the things that I was reminded um, by Carrie, one of my nurse practitioners that I have the privilege of working with, she happened to be a physical therapist in her past, and she remembered many hospitals have something called a hydroculator. You may want to check in your hospital setting if you also have a hydroculator. This is usually in the physical therapy department. And it allows you to have silica gel filled um, pads that can be heated and ready for use at any given moment. Uh, and these things can be laundered. So it might help in terms of equipment and things of that nature. So um, that's it from an intensive care standpoint. What I'll do now is I'll hand it back to Dr. Zeno Marcel, who has uh, some more words for us. Thank you, gentlemen. This was very insightful. We want to just, uh, we will be bringing this up again at the conclusion, but we want to bring it up now for those of you who are interested, and I'm speaking to our medical professionals and our hospital affiliates. If you're interested in pursuing a multi-site trial similar to what has been described by our panelists, again, you can go to our Facebook group where our panelists will all be able to respond to you, and we'll be providing that to you again at the conclusion of the program. At this time, Dr. Charles, Dr. Zeno Charles Marcel is going to present to us specifically what the science says and what the science does not say. Dr. Zeno. Thank you, Leila. You know, I'm going to be somewhat skeptical. I'm going to play the skeptic because we have all of this uh, good information, and we have uh, good studies, but we always have questions that we need to answer. So I'll start with the first, with a case. Okay, here's a case of a 70-year-old man, 11-day history of fever and delirium, who has the influenza. This was during the time of the pandemic back in 1918. By the time he presented to the sanitarium, he was unconscious. His Temperature was 103 Fahrenheit or 39.4 centigrade. He had edema of the neck. He had redness and inflammation of his throat. He also uh, had uh, inflammatory edema of the left lung. That's what they called it in those days. Uh, similar to bronchial pneumonia. 
and uh, they, he had a distribution that was consistent with that. His physician had become ill and left, but had given the patient's daughter the opinion that undoubtedly death of this man would occur within two days. Well, they got a nurse to come and uh, apply the treatments. They used the treatment regimen that they uh, were using back then for the pandemic pneumonia. And this was applied at 4 p.m. in the evening. The nurse saw no discoverable change in his condition. However, the next morning by eight o'clock, the physician who was visiting saw that the patient was conscious, no delirium. Treatment was repeated twice uh, during the days and uh, attention was uh, made to the throat. And within a matter of days, one week, he was back to normal, completely recovered. The question is what produced this outcome? What was it? Was it, was it just the hydrothermal therapy or was it other stuff that was being done that just was not recorded, that were not recorded? Here's another case, a 30-year-old woman ill for four days. Uh, she was in the, in the midst of the uh, 1918 pandemic of Spanish flu. Nothing was being done for her. She had a temperature of 105 Fahrenheit or 40.6 Celsius. She was delirious and became unconscious with large areas in her back. You know what we see in the hospital and sometimes when people are getting ready to die. This is what she looked like. She had poor circulation and, uh, and they thought, well, she was a goner. She had shifting uh, crepitus in her lungs, mostly over the back, much worse on the dependent side, yet she didn't have any uh, specific consolidation. Uh, but they thought it was severe pneumonia associated with this Spanish flu. They quickly applied the treatment, the hot foot bath, the hot packs on the, to the chest, front and back, and uh, they combined this with the cold uh, mitten uh, friction rub, which is a, a cold treatment uh, right afterwards. This was given twice a day. Two days of treatment seemed nearly unavailing. But then on the third day, clear mind, temperature back to normal. After five days of treatment, everything was back to normal. She survived. And the question again is what produced that outcome? Well, what don't we know? We don't know how many had that outcome. We don't know how many were treated. So we don't have the numerator nor the denominator data. What else could have confounded these results? We don't know what uh, was the actual diagnosis established because they didn't have some of those tests in those days. What uh, was found in the different centers where people were treated with these treatments, were they all the same treatments or did they have variations that were significant from one another? Did they all use the same protocol to get similar results? Well, was there a plausible explanation for these things or was there something else? Were they treated indoors? Were they treated outdoors? They had outdoor hospitals in those days, which means people got uh, sunshine, but also sometimes the outdoor hospitals would be cold and people would end up being worse than if they were indoors. Did they have sun exposure? It even happened with H1N1 influenza back in those days. Will it happen with SARS-CoV-2 now? 
questions, questions, questions. Well, here's what we have. We have mechanisms by which we know, as uh, Dr. Schwell pointed out, that fever affects the host cells, fever affects the macrophages, and this is involved in innate immunity. We also know that thermal stress produces some things that we call heat shock proteins, and these are immune modulators. They affect the dendritic cells and, uh, and essentially jumpstart the ability of the body's immune system to go from the innate side over to the acquired immunity side. We have fever and fever rage hyperthermia, 38.5 to 41 degrees, and both of them can, can induce these heat shock proteins. This is very important. What else? We have mechanisms by which we can demonstrate that the heat shock proteins will take the, uh, the fragments of the virus and present it all the way out to the surface of the cell so that other cells, other immune active cells, can then be able to know what the enemy looks like. What else do we have? We have a mechanisms by which using these heat shock proteins, whether intracellularly or extracellularly, we can affect the immune response, both the innate immune response and the adaptive immune response. And we have, we have evidence, biochemical evidence, of how that works using these heat shock proteins. And of course, using one example of heat shock protein uh, 70, we can see all of the various cells that might be affected, the dendritic cells, the monocytes, uh, the T cells, uh, the macrophages, and of course, the natural killer cells. All of them can be positively affected by the elaboration or by the effect of heat protein uh, 70. And then there's another heat shock protein that's 60. In low quantities, it has a, a, a one kind of effect, and in higher concentration, it has another kind of effect. In other words, it can be anti-inflammatory or pro-inflammatory, depending upon the amount of this that is elaborated. So what we have here is a, a case of hormesis, where we can see low amounts doing one thing, higher amounts doing something else. What we don't have, then is scientific evidence specifically that hydrothermal therapy was really the factor that saved the lives of so many during the 1918 flu pandemic. We don't have specific uh, double-blinded placebo-controlled trials that show that hydrotherapy or hydrothermal therapy is effective in preventing and treating COVID-19. We don't have double-blind placebo-controlled studies that show that SARS-CoV-2 specifically wipes out the human immune defenses at the level of the immune of the innate response, even though it is highly evident that this is probably what is going on. We don't have any way to know how to stimulate the particular heat shock proteins at a specific concentration for work at a specific site. We don't have direct scientific analysis that demonstrate that SARS-CoV-2 acts just as it would be in H1N1 in 1918. We don't have a demonstration that heat applied by any method would have the same or similar results, even though we know we can uh, increase the temperature by many different mechanisms. We don't have direct evidence that hydrothermal therapy 
is as we suggest it will be applied, that will have the effect in the host immune system just as we predict and hope that it will. Now I say all that to say this, researchers and medical professionals are racing all around the world to find pharmaceutical solutions and to create a vaccine. But we have a history of this modality being used along with other things. We have plausibility of how it can be done. We also have molecular mechanisms that demonstrate that this is not something fly-by-night. It's not something uh, weird. It's actually scientifically demonstrable through the heat shock proteins and other mechanisms. So we have indirect evidence that this is something that is useful and probably helpful. Hydrothermal therapy is relatively low risk. It is perhaps an adjunctive uh, approach to lifestyle measures and lifestyle practice. We don't believe that it's a panacea. But while future hydrothermal therapy research is needed and absolutely needed, in the meantime, hydrothermal therapy probably won't hurt, and it may help. While we search for definitive solutions, therefore, what have we to lose to try something that is so simple? Roger. Thank you. Yes, thank thank you. you, Dr. Zeno. And, you know, Dr. Schwelt, I just want to ask you a very quick question. A few days ago, you and I were discussing this topic, and you said something to me. You proposed four solutions, four options, and it really made a huge impact on me. And I was wondering if you could share that with our viewers right now, those four options of where Dr. Zeno has essentially left us at this point. Yeah, so if we could bring up the uh, PowerPoint slides there. Um, basically, this is where we are right now. We have two sets of two choices. It either works or it doesn't work. We either do it or we don't do it. And if we have the benefit of having randomized controlled trials down the line, and we're at that area down the line, we're going to know looking down from above whether or not it works or it doesn't work. But we're not there right now, unfortunately. Unfortunately, we're in the here and the now. And so the only way we can look at this is from the horizontal side. Do we do it or do we not do it? And you can see there looking at it horizontally, there's a negative in both of those camps. Of course, if you do it and it works, that's a good thing. If it doesn't work and you don't do it, well, that's a good thing. But if it doesn't work and you do it, then you could be wasting resources and time. Uh, if, it, if it does work and you don't do it, well, there's people that could have been saved that didn't save. So we can only choose from the horizontal side to do it or not do it. And so the question is, would you rather do something that doesn't work or not do something that does work. And so, and that really what it boils down to is the risks and benefits as Dr. Marcel had mentioned. Look at it this way, we've got this phase two. And while we can look at all three phases and we're primarily affecting right now in our public policy phase one, which is social isolation and phase three, which is getting a tremendous amount of resources at the hospitals where they're currently being overwhelmed in many places. In phase two, it's kind of like the, the calm before the storm. People are sitting at home, waiting, seeing if their cough and shortness of breath are gonna get better or not, and then worried about whether or not they're gonna to go to the hospital. As we said, 80% of those people are gonna get better because of their immune system. And we've just gone through a number of different studies and looked at this, and at least it looks very plausible that if we could stimulate the immune system, especially the innate immune system, 
and simulate what this SARS-CoV-2 seems to be doing, which is down-regulating that, then even if we're able to get a little bit of mileage, and it seems as though we could probably get more, but let's just say we go from 80% success to 85% success. Well, then the number of people having to go to the hospital will be reduced from 20% down to 15. And that would be calculated wise, that would be about a 25% reduction in the surge, which would be a very, very large amount. So the problem is, is though, that there are millions and millions people of people around the world that fit into this uh, phase two. And so really, what is the perfect intervention that you can do in a phase two? Remember, we're dealing with millions and millions of people that are in phase two potentially. So number one, and this is really important, it has to be complementary with current medical care. This is not something where we're saying, just do this and forget everything else. You don't need anything else. No, please, this is not what we're saying. This is to be complementary with the current medical uh, situation that you're dealing with. It has to be whatever this intervention is going to be. It has to be scalable to millions of people right away, okay? This cannot be the equivalent of toilet paper on the shelf at Costco, right? You've, you've got to be able to say, this is what we're going to do, and it's available for everybody to get, and they not have to go out to their pharmacy or perhaps get a test, you know as an individual when you're not feeling well. So if you need to get a test for COVID-19, by all means, but it's got to be something that should be able to be started without a test because we just don't have that kind of testing. And if you think about this, let's think about uh, other people other than ourselves. What do we do in prison camps? What do we do in refugee camps? What do we do in countries that don't have the same kind of health care that, that we have, um, that they don't have access to this. They don't have access to the, the type of things that we're talking about. I think the key here is the understanding that we need to get the basal temperature up. And depending on what your surroundings are, then those are the tools that you use to do it. And everybody has water at home. Everyone has towels for the most part. Um, and these aren't things that are scarce resources. These are things that you can do and take advantage of. So it really boils down to uh, risks versus benefits. And that decision is going to be between a patient and a physician or a patient who understands things through their physician, what their risks are. You know, right now, given all of those characteristics of a phase two intervention, what other alternatives do we have right now? We are months away from a vaccine. We are months away from a randomized placebo-controlled trial currently. The one that we have the most data on, it seems right now, is hydroxychloroquine, which is a politically loaded question at this point, and it's still very difficult to find. Um, again, what's the risks of using a medication like that? I'm using medications like that in the hospital because we're trying to do everything that we possibly can. We are not making the good the enemy of the perfect. You know, How long is it going to take, as we mentioned, a vaccine and, and medications? Because really, when you think about it, Layla, in the time that we've taken just here right now to talk about this, in the last 90 minutes, based on the current numbers that we're getting, another 381 people around the world have died from COVID-19, at least. Those are the ones that we've documented. So my call out to people out there is to, is to really, the purpose of this symposium, the reason why you're here, the reason why I'm here, is to raise awareness to this possible, uh, possible adjunctive therapy for COVID-19, if you're in the healthcare industry to raise awareness where you are working, that this could be a potential possibility. If you are um, not in the healthcare industry, if you're watching this and you're a patient to do more studying and learn more about this and to um, affect your lives and other people's. 
You know, thank you so much, Dr. Schwell. What you have said, and I just want to recap and make sure that I understand exactly what you're saying, because essentially the question comes down to the risk-benefit ratio. And the risks, we've talked about a few of those risks, don't seem to be too big comparative to the potential benefit as we've seen through the history. Thank you again. Thank you to all of our panelists. At this time, I am excited to introduce another friend of mine, uh, Mark Finley. Mark Finley is an international speaker and assistant to the president of the General Conference of Seventh-day Adventists. And before we go to um, Mark Finley, I wanted to say one other thing. Coming back to the historical aspect of this whole 1918 pandemic, when we've looked back at some of the other principles that John Harvey Kellogg was employing, as Dr. Landless and Dr. Hart mentioned, there are a lot of other aspects to holistic health. And what Elder Mark Finley is going to talk to us about just briefly is, is there more to this holistic approach? We've learned hydrothermal therapy has some potential and we hope to be able to study that. But we're also going to talk very briefly about some other principles. Listen as Mark Finley presents. Thank you so much. Well, I've been asked to talk a little bit about whole person care. What is whole person care? It's a comprehensive philosophy of health that recognizes that human beings are much, much more than biological machines. They're more than a collection of organs and tissues and cells. Whole person care looks at all dimensions of life, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And as a theologian, when I looked back at what was taking place in 1918 in these 21 sanitariums, that had such outstanding results with the Spanish flu. Certainly they were doing the hydrothermal therapy. They had a program of uh, dietary uh, concern, dietary reform really, and they were largely on a vegetarian diet in these sanitariums. Uh, They were using rest as a therapy, but there was another aspect of therapy. These were Seventh Avenue institutions where the doctors and nurses believed in the power of prayer. They believed that there was a supernatural element in the healing process. They believed in this complete, comprehensive health program, physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional. In some of the recent studies, 94% of the patients today said that spiritual care in one study that I read was as important as medical care for the whole person care. In fact, 77% of the patients in that study said that a physician should be concerned about the spiritual care of their patients as well as the, the medical care of them. When you look at scripture, The model here is Jesus. Jesus is the model physician in whole person care. He opened blind eyes. He unstopped deaf ears. He healed deadly diseases. He restored demoniacs who were mentally insane. He fed hungry multitudes. He forgave sins and inspired thousands with new hope. Jesus valued human beings from all stratas of society. His unselfish ministry flowed from a heart of love to every individual that his life touched. You know, the scriptures say that Jesus went about doing good. And Christ said this. Christ said, I've come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. 
I am so impressed with physicians, nurses, medical professionals who are in the front lines today, who long to see men and women whole, who risk their own lives. You know, often as a theologian, I'm asked, where is God in all this? Where's God in COVID-19? And my response is this, he's in the heart of every physician who's on the front lines ministering in love. He is in the heart of every medical practitioner who's serving unselfishly and revealing compassion. He is there with every nurse on the front lines of service. He's with the neighbors as they give loving care to their neighbors. He's with spouses who serve one another in crisis. He's with every person whose body is racked with pain, and he's there to give them comfort and encouragement. I was interested in a statement that Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, made today. He was asked on this Easter Sunday, what role does faith play in healing? And Dr. Fauci talked about his own father and how his father was a man of faith. And he talked about the fact that in his own medical practice, although that he is an eminent scientist and researcher, he said that he believed that faith was one of the ingredients that strengthened the immune system, that release positive chemical endorphins from the brain that help to produce healing. And so as a medical uh, practitioner, as a theologian, I want to salute you. I want to thank you for being on the front lines. Thank you for understanding this concept of whole person care, that when you're there at the bedside, that you are dealing not with a collection of a bio, of biology merely, not simply with a biological uh, machine, not a collection of organs, tissues, and cells, but that you're looking at that person. You're concerned about that individually, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And sometimes there are questions that we can ask. If a person is able to, in their conscious and able to, to, to dialogue with us, we might ask them, where in a time of crisis do you find a source of strength? And sometimes the person will open up and talk about their own relationship with God. We might ask a question, may I pray with you? And as we do that, it can produce strength. And other people have confidence in physicians that have a connection with the Most High. So I salute you for being physicians on the cutting edge of medicine, physicians who are willing to try new methods of hydrothermal therapy and participate in whole person care. So as Jesus said, men and women and boys and girls can have life and have it more abundantly. Thank you, Leila. Thank you so much, Dr. Finley. That was absolutely inspirational. And I know myself, I've personally seen that with patients how many times as an OBGYN running down the hall with a patient that I needed to have an emergency C-section on. And I offer at that split moment a prayer and what a difference it makes. At this time, speaking of prayer, we're going to ask Angeline Brower, Dr. Angeline Brower is an experienced researcher and registered dietitian and currently serves as a director of health ministry for the Seventh-day Adventist Church here in North America and a very close personal friend of mine. She's going to have closing prayer for us. And after she prays, I will have a very 
final quick final wrap up and then we'll open up for question and answer. Again, thank you, Dr. Brower. Thank you so much, Dr. Leela, and to all of our presenters who've shared information with us tonight. You know, we've heard a lot about the historical use of hydrothermal therapy. We've heard about the relevant modern research, and we've heard about potential mechanisms, mechanisms of action um, to confront our current COVID-19 pandemic. Um, I believe we also now have some better questions to ask. Um, and I hope that many of those of you who are listening who may have the ability to play a role in furthering the research uh, to, to take us to the next uh, steps through this. I hope that you will find an opportunity to, to do that. Uh, yes, we do have important questions that need to be answered. And as was already mentioned, we don't want to just seek a panacea. We don't want just a quick solution, but we want to find out how and in what situations can we utilize this therapy um, to, to, to support what is already being done. And I believe we have a viable option to pursue. And I also do believe that we can find hope in what we've heard today. And so I know many of those of you who are listening today are on the front lines. You are the ones working with the patients um, and you are the ones putting yourselves at risk. And so what I really want to do is just pray a blessing over you um, and all those who are risking their lives at this time. So let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, Lord, uh, we are coming before you at a very specific time for a very specific reason, for a very specific need. And there are people who are listening to us tonight um, who are going through very, very tough situations because they want to save lives. They want to minister healing. And Lord, they're putting their own lives at risk. And I believe you know every single one of them. And so we want to ask a prayer of blessing on each one of them on their families, on all of those who are risking their own lives as well as their families' lives. So we ask for time of, of peace in their lives. We ask that when their strength is almost gone, that you will send someone to minister hope to them. We ask that this situation will somehow come to a conclusion. We want that more rapidly than anything else right now, but we want to also find hope. And so we thank you that there are opportunities. We thank you that there are those who are continuing to strive to find the right answers. And we pray that together, we will all come through this situation much stronger for having gone through it. So we ask that blessing on all those who are going through these very tough times. And this we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Brower. And again, I want to say each to each and every one of you, thank you for attending this first symposium. What's exciting is that we have learned so many interesting things that took place between the situation of 1918 and perhaps 
in the COVID-19 situation. If you can pull my slides up, that would be wonderful. We want to talk to you very briefly. Uh, we've heard it mentioned several times over for ongoing research opportunities. Again, this is something that was we all really want to offer. For those of you who are interested, you can join our Facebook group. Again, you can access that if you're not able to write this number down. You can access that through awr.org forward slash health and just join the Facebook group. In addition to that, next slide, please. We want to discuss with you very briefly. Again, there are lots of other principles that we've touched on just briefly. Many of our panelists have agreed that next Sunday at the exact same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, we will have Symposium Part 2. Again, CME credits are available, and you are welcome to join us. Again, next week, we're planning to look at ultraviolet radiation and open space. You're not going to want to miss that. And again, exciting information. Again, finally, as far as the CMEs are concerned, you do not have to have attended this live in order to get CME credits. If some of your colleagues were unable to attend today, please feel free to access the archived video, and we will be linking that again to the various locations where you watched this. And you will be able to, or your colleagues will be able to watch the presentation. And then again, go to the website, awr.org forward slash health, and enter your information to obtain your CMEs. At this time, for those of you who are interested, we know we've gone just a few minutes over, we do want to offer an opportunity of answering your questions as far as possible. So many of our panelists will be joining me and we will take your questions as they come up on the screen. Again, thank you for joining us on behalf of Adventist World Radio and the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We hope you will join us again next time. Now we have some questions coming in. And I'm going to wait for our first question uh, to come up. One of the questions that uh, actually arose, Dr. Schwelt, someone was asking specifically last week in the ICU, what did you do for your ICU patients in specifically in regard to hydrothermal therapy? So we had to be uh, careful. I had to talk to the nurses. This was the first week that we actually had patients with COVID-19 in the ICU, and we were just starting to learn about how to go in and dress. And, um, and you'd think that it's complicated, but it's even more complicated when you come out because you could contaminate yourself. So after they were comfortable with that, what we decided to do was to use very hot towels uh, that were um, in in very hot water, wring them out, and then make sort of like a sandwich where there was a dry towel on top to keep the heat in and a dry towel on the bottom to prevent the patient from burning. Um, we really had to make sure that um, that it was not too hot because the patient was unconscious. We wanted to, to see how it was going to work. Um, and so we did try that to see if it was uh, something that, it was more of a feasibility study to see what was involved and, and how to do it. So it was not a patient that we enrolled in any kind of study or anything like that. Um, we also uh, de declined um, treating the patient's fever up to about 103. I wanted to be conservative. I think some people might even say 104. 104. I, I think there's pretty good data on that. It's just a matter of, of making sure the mindset on the unit is, is that way, because for so long, we're so used to treating a fever as something that's wrong, uh, when really, in, in this case, it's, it's something that's right. It means that the body is increasing temperature, the virus is not replicating. So we did that. At first, I was going to have them do it once a shift. We, we tried to get it to twice a shift. 
And I think that's um, something in line with what Dr. Nelson was is writing up over uh, in, uh, in Tennessee. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Schwald. Um, we're going to try to power through a, a bunch of questions as fast as possible. So I just want to recap again what Dr. Nelson and Dr. Schwalt have mentioned. Again, go to that Facebook group. And if you'd like to learn more or how you can join in the multi-site uh, investigative trial, we, we would really encourage that. Okay, we have another question that just came in. Um, if you can put, please put the question back up on the screen, that would be appreciated. Thank you so much. Uh, and the question was, does hydrothermal therapy help for those who are not yet officially infected? And Dr. Kelly, I would ask for a very brief answer to that question, if you wouldn't mind, as far as the community is concerned. Yes, thank you. That's a great question. And the fact is, that the immune system is what's keeping us oftentimes from getting infected or for uh, keeping it from uh, an exposure, getting a, uh, infecting us to create symptoms. So of course, uh, we don't have double blind studies, but all the physiology and plausibility indicates, yes, it should be quite effective. Okay, thank you so much. All right, we have another question. What are prophylactic and treatment recommendations you can give to someone who is immunosuppressed, specifically a cancer survivor, bone marrow transplant recipient, um, et cetera? Um, Dr., uh, Dr. Nelson, can you answer that? And I would also like to ask uh, Dr. Zeno to come in as well. Dr. Nelson, how would you help a, a immunosuppressed patient, please? So the immunosuppressed patient is in general going to be benefiting from some of the same treatment protocols. I don't know that I would do anything different except try to minimize their immunosuppression throughout this time. Uh, I'm not an oncologist. I'll defer to Dr. Schwelt, who probably has more experience in this. But in rare cases, someone who has undergone some chemotherapy, for example, and their white blood cell count is extremely low, may actually need to uh, have a medication such as Neupogen that can boost their white blood cell count. But in general, I don't think that the immunosuppressed patient needs to be treated any differently as far as the hydrothermal therapy component that we've been discussing this evening. Um, I wouldn't treat them any differently. Thanks. There are a few uh, examples of patients I would treat differently. For instance, we have a patient on our study right now that had a stroke and the neurologist indicated they were happy for us to have them on our study as long as we waited for 72 hours. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Nelson. Dr. Zeno, um, I, I just want to come back to that question as far as immunosuppressive, uh, immunosuppressed patient. There's some other data out there. I know it's some of the things that we're hoping to investigate in future symposiums. Can you just give us just the teeniest, tiniest little snippet of an idea of what an immunosuppressed person might be able to do? And I know it involves those other seven principles we've sort of talked about. Yes, we've talked about a, a lot of different things, but specifically with regard to hydrothermal therapy, uh, actually hot and cold treatments uh, will cause an increase in the neutrophil count, okay? So th that's that's a positive thing, all right? I shouldn't say it will, but it, 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 uh, it will tend to cause an increase in the total white blood cell count. Thank you. Uh, additionally, um, one of the things that we had talked about before, especially looking at, uh, at people who have various kinds of immunosuppression because of cancer, uh, etc., uh, we have other protocols that we use with, uh, with hydrotherapy and hydrothermal therapy that we, we would not get into uh, with this talk, but uh, most of those things are experimental still. 
And we know that in, um, in control trials, they're looking at warming up patients before using radiation therapy and before using chemotherapy, uh, and it's showing some good benefit. Fascinating. Well, we have another question coming in. How effective would exercise be at raising core body temperature, followed by a cold shower to gain the same effect? So yes, we do know that exercise uh, can increase our temperature. Dr. Schwelt, can you answer that question for us, please? Yeah, we know that that works just uh, very, very well, actually. In fact, in that study that I showed you from Toronto, where they took people in a warm bath and they uh, then cooled their temperature down and there was an increase in natural killer cells and lymphocytes. Now, what I didn't show you there in that study is that they did exactly the same thing, except instead of a warm bath, they had them exercise. And in those patients, the effect was even greater. So I right. think exercise prior to that would be a plus. Can I just say as well, uh, in terms of, of cancer and, and chemotherapy and immunosuppression, you know, these companies that I, we, we mentioned in the scientific part, uh, in South Korea and in Washington and in Israel, they were all looking at natural killer cells to help with immunity in cancer. And they've all turned and repurposed their technology to looking at COVID-19. Uh, it's exactly the same thing. So they're getting mesenchymal cells to increase natural killer cells. Um, and, and they're taking it and infusing it into patients who have come into the hospital. Imagine if we could do the same thing without infusion, just doing it through, through much less invasive ways much earlier. Um, imagine what those outcomes might be. Great. We, we have uh, another question popping up. Let's, let's go to the next question, please. And we have hundreds of questions, gentlemen. So we're going to try to keep our answers as fast as possible because we really would like to answer as many as we can. And I'm not sure if some of our other panelists will be able to be pulled in as well. When is it too late to start hydrothermal therapy? If someone has had it for 10 days, but not is hospitalized as of yet, Dr. Nedley, uh, is, is there a time that hydrothermal therapy is just too late and we should not actually utilize it? No, I don't think it's too late, particularly in this case where they're not hospitalized yet. I mean, that's the whole idea is to try to prevent that hospitalization and the worsening of the condition and going to the cytokine storm. The big question is, if they are in an ICU already and on a ventilator and high PEEP levels, is it going to help then? We still don't know the answer to that, but based on historical data, it's probably not going to be as helpful as it would earlier in the course before the patient does their final deterioration signs. So I would actually ask a real quick question as follow-up to that. Is there a time that we should just basically not employ it, or should we go ahead and, and potentially, as we're discussing here, potentially investigate opportunities for, for further trials and investigation? And I think that's kind of where the, the question was going. Dr. Schwelt, that's a question for you. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're going to have to realize that the strength of the intervention is not going to be as great, and you may have to power the study much greater to find uh, whether or not the statistical significance matches up. Thank you so much. Another question just came in. Can you talk about the phenomenon of fever spikes, which occur in the evenings? Is there a time of day that works best for hydrotherapy? Dr. Kelly, in your experience, is there a time that seems to work best for hydrotherapy? 
You know, this is a great question, and I found it quite interesting in reading uh, the reports from the physicians that were using hydrotherapy in the 1918-1919, and what they said there was that they, and they have more experience than I do, to be quite honest with you, I have almost no experience treating COVID-19 because I'm a lifestyle medicine doctor, but what I would say is they said the most effective time seemed to be just as the fever was starting to, to rise that a uh, hydrothermal uh, therapy at that point seemed more effective than at other times. So going on that, I would say, let's go the same way. Any of the other panelists have any other thoughts on that question? Only that in the hospital for our trial, we've been advised by some of the lifestyle medicines you see in front of you about the frequency, and we are trying to mimic what might be a natural rhythm of fevers that the body brings in suggesting that we're going to be doing hydrotherapy about every uh, about three to four times per day. Thank you, Dr. Nelson. Very quick question next. Does electrical heating pad at home work for heat therapy and how long per session? Now, before we answer this, gentlemen, uh, we have talked about a few different modalities in this presentation. I would actually ask first, very, very quickly, Dr. Schwelt, tell us the three different ways that we could potentially just, I know we have a lot of different ways, but three different ways we might be able to bring the temperature up. And then I'm going to uh, relay the rest of that question. Dr. Nelson, specifically as far as your IRB application, Dr. Schwelt. Yeah. So uh, I talked to a good friend of mine uh, earlier this week, Dr. Benjamin Lau, who's a, uh, my, actually he was my microbiology teacher in medical school and has written a book that you could probably find on the internet about it. Um, but any way you can bring it up, you can put a towel in the microwave, making sure you don't burn your hand. You can put a towel into a, um, a, a pot of boiling water or steam it. You can do it that way. A lot of times what you find is that the towel doesn't keep the heat in. What you really need to do is have heat for about 15 or 20 minutes. And if the towel doesn't last that long, what I find is helpful is a heating pad being put on top of it to keep the towel hot and not to lose the heat. That's what I find a heating pad probably best for. Um, but you can heat up in a hot, hot spa, 104 degrees, and stay in there for 15 minutes and then jump into a, a cold pool just to keep and lock the heat in. There's many ways of doing it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Schwalt. And Dr. Nelson, very quickly, I know that you guys are using Thermoforce. Tell us a little bit about uh, how long per session that you are recommending and then following that up as far as the cold therapy. So we're using heating pads. Uh, Thermofor is actually the brand name of the specific heating pad that we're using. Because of its cover, it tends to provide a moist heat. It's a very high-powered heating pad. And the reason we're using that is purely for the safety of the nurses. We can't have the nurses going in and out of the hospital room, changing out the hot towels. Uh, any of these other mechanisms at home would be just fine for providing moist heat uh, to the body. But uh, we think thermophores are very effective. I've used them myself. Uh, we, get, we got the largest size. and We're going to be wrapping that around the chest. The thermal lock is going to be provided by a moist, cool towel. Most patients will probably find that as they do hot and cold treatments, over time, they'll be able to tolerate a greater and greater temperature differential. And we'll be interested to see if we see that in our patients as well. The reason that we are using it for 25 minutes is purely arbitrary. The thermophore shuts off after 25 minutes. And so that's why we chose 25 minutes for our application of heat. Of course, we'll be guided by uh, the nurses and uh, how often they're able to get in and out of the room and also patient comfort. 
Uh, we'll have monitors uh, for skin temperature and be uh, monitoring their systemic temperatures as well during that time. But our choice of 25 minutes was purely arbitrary. Great. Thank you so much. Okay. We're going to try to squeeze in just a few more questions. So we're going to try to keep our answers just as short as possible, gentlemen, if you don't mind. Is there a protocol for outpatients? For example, how can I try this at home? Dr. Nedley, I know Weimar has been working on this very briefly. Can you tell us if there's a protocol and um, in essence, how we can practically apply that, please? Well, yes, thank you. Uh, Weimar Institute actually is coming out with a video every day this next week on how to do that in a home setting uh, and how to do it in multiple ways. And so uh, quickly, if you just uh, log on to our website, you'll be able to hear some more details of what John Kelly presented and actually see it in a live treatment setting, step-by-step. And I wanted to plug, actually, Dr. Kelly has a program. It's actually a training process. Is that correct, Dr. Kelly, very briefly, that you are teaching to the community? Yes, we are. And we're teaching not only just the community, but also professionals, we uh, physicians and so forth. It's um, hydro hydrotherapy training course at Gmail is the uh, email, and uh, we can get you information about it. Great. And again, for our viewers, again, if you go to awr.org forward slash health, you can access this information and be able to reference some of these locations such as Weimar, Dr. Kelly's program, Dr. Nelson and Dr. Schwelt, Dr. Zeno. I have a quick question for Dr. Zeno. Dr. Uh, Zeno, you mentioned a dietary nutrition with fruits and vegetables. We need another program specifically devoted to dietary nutrition. I've heard Dr. Kelly speak um, at different places. We would like to know about plant-based diets and do they really improve the immune system? Dr. Zeno. The answer is shortly yes. Uh, <laughs> but but we, have, we have a lot of uh, evidence-based uh, research that demonstrates which factors in the diet are actually the most potent in terms of uh, immune modulation. So we should do another program specifically on that and, and nutrition and immunity, yes. Thank you so much. So you're going to want to stay tuned and get more CME credits. How can you go wrong? Free CME credits and, and actually learning how to better uh, the health of our patients and ourselves. Okay. Is moist heat better than dry heat? That is a very good question. Dr. Schwelt, in one or two sentences, can you answer that for us, please? You know, I don't think it really matters uh, a big difference. Uh, I'll tell you, I was on a conference call uh, teaching a number of ICU doctors in Libya a couple of nights ago. I was up at, at uh, one o'clock in the morning and they were uh, uh, listening and I was explaining to them what we were just talking about right now. And they, they are telling me that a number of years ago, kind of in their lore, um, they would take very hot sand and they would put it on, on people. It seems as though every culture has known for centuries how to treat this condition. And we've, we've kind of lost it in a sense. Uh, obviously, hot, dry sand is, is, not, um, is not moist heat, but it's, you know, it might be preferable. It might be more comfortable. And I'll, I'll just say at this point, one of the things, Layla, that I really am hopeful is that people learn from John and, and from Dr. Nedley and let's, let's make it a social media event. Let's go hashtag uh, hydro for COVID. <laughs> and uh, let's show people doing their uh, hydrotherapy uh, online and sharing it with people. And so people catch on. Uh, I think it would be a great idea. I think that's an awesome idea. And I saw Dr. Nedley put one finger up. Dr. Nedley, do you have an added additional uh, information you wanted to add to that? Well, moist heat is more penetrating. 
And so if we're actually trying to get into the pulmonary parenchyma, uh, moist would have an advantage. And and not to, you know, advertise any specific brand, but their Thermofor does have one of its newer products has an actual opportunity where you can put a moist towel and protect your skin. So again, there's many different ways out there. Um, we want to just explore more of those in a more scientific setting, but there are a lot of different ways to get the moist heat and heat in general. Okay. Uh, we have a question coming in for us specifically about drinking hot water. Does drinking hot water have any benefit, Dr. Zeno? Yes. In the, in the use of, uh, of hydrothermal therapy, sometimes you need to get the temperature up and drinking hot, uh, hot water or warm water. And uh, in the old days, they used to use uh, hot lemonade as part of the uh, hydrothermal therapy as well. And we have time for, I think, one more question and then we're going to have to wrap it up. Again, we wanted to keep it to getting your two hours to CME credits. This is our last question. And actually, I'm really glad this question came up. Does steam inhalation have any benefits? And gentlemen, I'm actually going to propose this to each of you in your different aspects, but I'm also going to add the following caveat because we've heard this, uh, I've heard it spouted several different places and I would like to put this one to rest. Um, so go ahead and answer a steam inhalation, but I'm also going to add a final part of that. Does placing a uh, hair dryer in one's mouth help to increase your temperature. So we're going to, I, I, we, we don't want to chuckle, but we do want to address some of these ideas because uh, we do need to be scientific and factual, but, and careful as physicians. So first question is, does steam inhalation have any benefits? Dr. Schwelt, and I'm just gonna go right down the road. Dr. Schwelt. Uh, you're gonna be surprised. You're gonna be very surprised. There was an article in the British Medical Journal a number of years ago that looked at a device that heated air and they did a randomized placebo controlled trial. And in one case, it was 43 degrees centigrade versus 30. The 30 was the placebo. They didn't think it was gonna work at 30. Wouldn't you know it that the um, subjects actually reported, self-reported that their cold symptoms were better, that they, and they actually measured the resistance to airflow through the nose. And that was actually better when they inhaled at 43 degrees centigrade versus 30. So that was the British Medical Journal. Fascinating. Dr. Kelly, in your experience in the community setting, can you very, very briefly answer the question, steam inhalation in your experience, sir? Yes, thank you. And very simply, yes, I have seen benefit. I would say I have not always seen a dramatic improvement, but I've never seen any harm. And so I tend to, if people want to use it, I tend to encourage it. Okay, Dr. Nelson, how, how is your experience or in your IRB, are you planning to utilize steam at, in your studies? Well, my personal experience in the shower every morning is it feels great. <laughs> so I would encourage steam inhalation in the shower. Uh, no, in the IRB setting, we're not going to be having people inhale steam. I'd strongly urge people not to go inhaling other things. There's <laughs> lots of crazy things out there that people are suggesting you inhale. Thank you. Remember, the mucus lining is your protection from this virus. You don't want to dry it out, cause it to crack, get it irritated. Don't inhale noxious substances. But steam's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Nelson. Dr. Nedley, your experience and some of the practical tidbits there at Weimar as far as inhalation 
of STEAM and any other last closing thoughts you'd like to make? Yeah, the, of course, there's moist saunas and there's dry saunas. And actually, there's some comparison um, uh, trials done some years ago that do show a benefit of the moist sauna or steam inhalation. So, yes, I think it would have benefit. Thank you. And Dr. Zeno, uh, you have the final closing remarks for our program for today. Yes, uh, steam is useful. There are some issues, some caveats associated with that with people who have bronchospastic disease like asthma, because some people, the steam actually can uh, precipitate an asthmatic attack. So, so you'll have to be uh, careful about the use of steam in that setting. Additionally, some people uh, don't realize that steam is actually hot water. <laughs> and so they may, they may put their face a little bit too close to the source of the steam and get burnt. So that's, a, that's another downside of steam. And some would say, well, then why not use nebulizers? Well, nebulizers uh, produce small particles of, uh, of water, but it's not heated, okay? Right. So, so the, the difference between steam and nebulized uh, uh, mists is that one is hot, which is the steam, and the other is not, which is a nebulizer. So, but steam is beneficial. Uh, we used to use that uh, in other countries and in the United States uh, earlier for people with croup and other kinds of, um, of uh, bronchial problems, yes. Well, thank you so much. Thank you to all of our panelists, every single one of you. It's been an absolute joy to be on this symposium. And again, for our viewing audience, you are not going to want to miss next Sunday, again at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, we will be examining, again, the 1918 flu in comparison to COVID-19, specifically with the science regarding ultraviolet radiation and open space. Again, until next time, God bless you. Stay well, stay healthy holistically, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. We look forward to seeing you again. God bless and have a good evening. Thank you.